Well, Merry Christmas, church. That was weird. Uh, Merry Christmas, church. All right, there we go. Uh, I would normally at this point tell you to open your Bibles, and you can certainly do so. Uh, We are going to be hitting various passages as we go through uh, our sermon this morning. Um, I tried to helpfully collect those in the, the handout, which is unusual for us, but they will have them there uh, as we reference them. We've, we've been reading them as we go through Advent, and so I'm, I'm glad that you have that with you, that you won't be flipping through your Bibles, uh, but you certainly can do that if you choose. Uh, I know of no better place to be on a Christmas Eve morning than here with you to celebrate the birth and the arrival of Jesus Christ our Lord in this world. There is something incredibly triumphant about this day something that highlights God's victory in something of an odd way. Victory is rarely ever guaranteed at the beginning of something. We typically need to watch it play out before victory is assured, but in this case, we don't. In chess, the goal is to kill the opponent's king. Every other piece is expendable. No matter how valuable it might be, you can lose it, but you cannot lose the king. Oddly enough, though, the game ends before the king is ever actually killed. The goal is never reached. Checkmate is not the felling of the king. Checkmate is the inevitable felling of him. Checkmate happens when all other moves lead to destruction, where there's no safe space and no protection left for him. Christmas, then, is checkmate in many respects. The goal is not yet met. Satan still prowls like a roaring lion. Sin still has a great hold on humanity, on righteousness, vile behavior. Are norms here in this world not the exception? And yet for all that darkness, the light of God will not be overcome. In the coming of Jesus, we have now the dominoes in place for the inevitable end of all evil and sin and oppression in the world. The king of this world might not yet be felled, but there is no longer any place for him to run, no place to hide, no protection from the judgment that awaits him. And for us, God's people, those who belong to God in Christ, it is a time of rejoicing in that assured victory. Everyone prepares for this day. It's impossible to escape it. Radio stations change Christmas music as soon as they're done with Halloween. Blow up Santas, replace blow up witches in the yards of your sort of friends. If you have them, reassess your life. But nevertheless, you, you know this happens. Ads and reminders of presents and gatherings are before our eyes no matter where we turn. We consider, we buy, we hide, we wrap. Each day, we prepare. It just so happens that at Crossway, we prepare a little bit more explicitly than other churches possibly do. We celebrate Advent as the last four Sundays leading up to Christmas, each one with a different meaning and import. Each week, we've given a brief summary of the meaning of that day's particular candle, but perhaps a more thorough explanation is needed to sort of stitch all of those together, all those different facets of prophecy and faith and joy and peace, to put those together in a more cohesive way. That is what we hope to do this morning. The first week that we held Advent, we light the first purple candle of prophecy. For that particular Advent week, we read from Isaiah 9, 2 through 7. That particular scripture depicts what we'll call the point of prophecy. 
It is a scripture that speaks of the coming of a child of incredible and vast importance, a child that will put right everything in the world that has gone wrong, who will bring back the people of God from where they have been scattered in the world, bring both David's kingdom and eternal peace to all of the earth. But the prophecy doesn't start really truly in Isaiah chapter 9. It, of course, like all good promises, starts in dark times when God seems distant and hope like the rarest and most foolish of emotions. And it starts all the way back to chapters previous to where we read in Isaiah chapter 7 with the introduction of a king named Ahaz in a time of turmoil when the armies of Syria and the northern kingdom of Israel have actually come down upon Judah and have encircled Jerusalem. And Ahaz clearly thought that this was the end of his kingdom. In chapter 7, verse 2, Isaiah tells us that when the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, that is the northern kingdom, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. Needless to say, if you are a person who lives in Jerusalem, that is not going to inspire much confidence. God, though, wishes to bolster Ahaz's confidence. He wishes to to build up this worried king, so he sends him the prophet Isaiah. And Isaiah comes to him with both a prophecy of security and an opportunity, which has not been afforded to anyone else in Scripture so far as I can tell. Ahaz is told by the prophet Isaiah through the Lord, or the Lord speaking through Isaiah to Ahaz. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Note the nature of the sign Ahaz is allowed to ask for. As high as heaven or as low as Sheol, anything that covers the span of the universe, you can ask for. doesn't matter what it might be. He, the Lord, wants Ahaz to have his faith firmed. So, He wants him to ask for a sign. You want to move mountains? I will move them. You want me to dry up the seas? I will do it. You want me to stop the sun? It can happen. Send locusts on the enemies? No problem. You want me to send the sweet meteor of death for you all? I can do it. Ask me for a sign. When I was four, when I was four, I took my first plane ride. My family was flying down to Baton Rouge. We almost never did this. It was very strange. Flying down to Baton Rouge to see my mom's sister. I was getting on the plane. Stewardess said, hey, would you like to go sit in the cockpit? And I smiled at her, and I said with the utmost confidence, no. (laughs) And I went back to my seat. I was four. That was an incredibly wasted opportunity, and I feel like a moron even saying it in front of people. And that was not anywhere close to as silly as what Ahaz does here. Ahaz is given every opportunity. You can have anything you want to so that God can prove to you his power, his might, that he is with you, and he just flat passes on it. So Isaiah comes back and says, well, God has a sign for you anyway. The sign itself, given to us in 713 there, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and call his name Emmanuel, has two distinct perspectives. 
First, as many people note, the Hebrew word which is translated virgin doesn't actually carry that meaning alone, and it's not actually the most explicit word that could be used. They have a word that means literally and specifically virgin, and this word is not it. This word means young maiden, the implication being that every young maiden in Israel is most likely to be a virgin. So young maidens, the prophecy I think reads in one sense, are going to go and get married. They are going to conceive and they are going to bear sons. The picture is of life going on as it always has. The days will roll into years, the years will roll into decades, decades will roll into generations and generations, and life will go on. Ahaz, you will look out, young maidens will conceive, they will bear sons, and by that very process of going forward, the world, your kingdom is not coming to an end, and by that process going forward, you will know that I am with you. At the same time, we should note how unfitting that particular sign is. God has just offered Ahaz the sign of all time, from the heights of heaven to the depths of the grave. God then says he will give a sign, even if Ahaz doesn't want one. So to give a sign of something so natural, so ubiquitous, so normal, seems to contradict the entire purpose of the sign. This is also the reason we should be skeptical that in the following chapter, in chapter 8, Isaiah is simply prophesying the birth of Maher Shalal Hashbaz, his son. The weight of the sign, its gravity, simply cannot find its fulfillment in this prophet's child. That's why it's important that in chapter 9, we hear of a child being born, and this child is not like Isaiah's child. This child is different altogether. That child, the greatness of that sign, shows the greatness of the promise. The greater the sign that is given, the greater the child must be, the greater that the proof that God is indeed with us. So that when Jesus comes, born not just from a young maiden, but from a virgin, we have that sign paid out in full. A miracle unlike any other miracle. A son born to rule the world as God incarnate. God truly dwelling not only among our flesh, but by carrying our very flesh, God with us. This child is the one who will bring peace of God upon the world, will reunite the scattered people of God, break the oppressor's yoke from his people, gain the glorious titles of wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This child, Jesus, carries the necessary gravity and weight of everything that 714 could possibly mean. But why? Why give us such an amazing sign, but leave it clouded in mystery? Because when Jesus does come, you'll notice that people aren't just flocking to it. People don't recognize him. Herod doesn't know that he's even been born, and certainly he sends wise men to figure out who the child might be because he doesn't know. Why not make it more specific? Why not make it so that there could be no skepticism about who this child is or the point of it? But in all of this, I think we mistake the point of prophecy. The prophecy is not there to tell us precisely what the future holds, but to prepare us for it, to bolster our faith. Prophecy finds its importance in providing another reason why we can trust God. It's meant to help our faith, to alleviate the sort of lingering doubts that are among us. It is meant to make us firm in our faith, even when we, like Ahaz, will shake in the breeze. And we will. 
None of us is likely stout enough without the aid of sort of signs and wonders written in the word of God to know and to believe the great things the Bible claims for us. But we are fortunate that the Bible doesn't just call on us to believe, but continually gives us pictures of what it means to believe, of what faith looks like. Our second purple Advent, purple candle, and the second Advent reading then focuses on faith, and that is these pictures of faith that we get from Matthew 1, verses 18 through 25. We hear and we read of the face of faith. Joseph. Joseph hears news that Mary, his betrothed, not wife, is pregnant, and he seems to be deliberating how to act. He seems to have a pretty good notion of what he is going to do. Certainly, she has told him of what the angel has pronounced to her, but he quite rightly, one would think, suspects that infidelity has happened, and so he is going to divorce her. But the angel appears to him, clears Mary from wrongdoing in a vision, in a dream. He upholds the uniqueness of this child and the importance of it. But while he does that, he gives Joseph no comfort for the difficulties that he is going to face. Joseph, we find, is no longer deliberating anything, but he is simply acting. While it's easy to suspect that Joseph just acted in the moment because of this vivid and incredibly powerful dream that he had of this angel, I think it would be hard to not have sort of persistent doubt that accompanies the news. I mean, virgin conceptions are, needless to say, not the most regular occurrence in the world. I don't think that it's a stretch to imagine that when Mary gave him the news, she tried to explain to him the best she could what had happened. And so when the angel appears to Joseph in a dream, it's not a prophetic word that's given to Joseph, but more a confirmatory word. They simply supported Mary's story. I would have to think that it's easy for Joseph to blow that off. I don't think Joseph and his deliberations about what to do with Mary shows anything but love and kindness for her. He was probably looking forward to marrying her and would probably really like the angel's story to be true. And in the months leading up to it, in in all of the things that are going on, Joseph very easily could have thought that that dream was just a dream. Virgin conceptions don't happen. It's not even strictly foretold in Scripture that this would happen. This is strange and odd. No one saw this coming. After all, there would be severe repercussions for his character, which is perhaps the most valuable thing that a man of his stature had going for him in first century Palestine. Keeping Mary as his wife would have meant one of two things. Either Joseph was the one who got her pregnant, or that he kept her even though she committed fornication with another man. To the wide world, that is what would be true. Either way, Joseph had and was willing to defile himself with a girl of very little esteem. How could doubts not have crept in? How could doubts not have built up? And you might ask then, how do we know that he even truly believes? Because Scripture never tells us that Joseph had faith. It never tells us that Joseph believes. We're given no indications of his mindset. We're given no philosophical conjectures or a scent of set of knowledge that he assents to, but that is indeed very good for us, for his belief is not just a collection of verbs and nouns, of adjectives and conjunctions that are put together into sentences so that we can assert that they're true. Belief here is found in action, what you do and how you do it. So it is with Joseph. 
we find Joseph not only doing what is asked of him immediately, but continually. Take Mary as your wife, he does. Name the child Jesus, he does. He's last later to leave the only land that he has known and travel to take his adopted son to Egypt, and he does. Return now, not to your hometown, but to a completely different town in the north. So it is. Doubt always runs two ways. You may doubt scripture and tradition. You may doubt your parents and your family and your pastors. But ask, why do you doubt them? Why not rather doubt the veracity of your doubts? Why can't virgins have sons? Why can't men be brought back from the dead? Cannot a God who made and sustained the world do anything that he wants to? If he was the one who wrote the code, wouldn't he know best how to hack it? You see, faith isn't the absence of doubt. It's not certainty. None of us is expected to walk around in our faith fully secure and confident. Rather, faith is the trusting of Scripture over our doubts. It is, in one sense, doubting our doubts. Why should Joseph just imagine the dream as a dream? Why should it just be his own subjective confirmation of what he wants to be true and, and not the actual truth? We believe in miraculous things. In here, we believe in the most miraculous of things. The irony of the incarnation is indeed astounding. The transcendent God is to take on flesh. The all-powerful God becomes a baby. The all-knowing God will one day learn his letters. The creator is himself given life. Yes, we believe in things that are impossible to confirm, impossible to test, and impossible to verify. Yes, we are utterly and completely unscientific in doing so. But we have the prophetic words spoken to us. We have tradition. We have Jesus' life, words, teachings, prophecy, death, and resurrection. I witnessed to all of those things, along with the Spirit confirming in our hearts what we know to be true. This is what faith looks like. Faith resists the nagging feeling that what you see is all you get. It trusts, not on blind faith, but on a reasonable suspicion that God is real, true, and has divulged himself in his word, Jesus Christ. And that faith persists in times of trouble. That belief continues when it's difficult and burdensome, precisely because not believing is even more so. But faith is, as it were, a conduit. We do not believe simply to believe. We do not believe that it is an end in itself. There is other ends that we are to have. And one such end is our third candle, the pink candle of joy. Let us now turn from one adopted parent of Jesus and Joseph to his biological mother, Mary, and see in her the genuineness of joy. Such faith ought to place upon us a great joy. And, and honestly, Christmas is a joyous time, but for many people, it is a hard time. You've lost loved ones. You have increased weight and responsibility upon you this time of year. You're reminded of the ever-present pushing forward of time as another year comes to the end and wonder perhaps where your life has gone. For some, being reminded of the great joy you are apparently supposed to feel at this time only makes your acute lack of joy and happiness all the more difficult. Somewhere like Simeon, as we meet in Luke chapter 1, rejoicing over the consolation of Israel. Somewhere like Zechariah, who is blessed with the gift of a long-awaited child. Some of us do indeed 
have the ability to rejoice as these folks rejoice. Unhindered and unfettered rejoicing. Others, however, are bent by the weight of this world. And while they hear of good news and of great joy, they can only feel the weight of life and its harrowing effects. But even for these, we can indeed expect that there would be some semblance of joy here. Mary doesn't seem like one who is given over to unfettered joy. Rather, she seems like one who is indeed weighed down by the difficulties of this world. The angel who appears to Mary does not hesitate to pronounce the goodness of the news that he's bringing to her. The initial proclamation is one of profound sweetness. Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. A, a higher and more beatific blessing, greeting, could barely be imagined coming from an angel. And yet we read immediately that Mary is still trepidatious and worried. She was greatly troubled. The whole meeting and interview with the angel gives us this sense of Mary, that she's not filled with joy at this proclamation, but she's got things going on in her brain. She's told that she has found favor, that her child will be great, even a or the king, and that there will be no end to his rule. There's even more good news than that. She doesn't have to believe on her own account, but she herself has given a sign. Her elderly cousin, Elizabeth, carries in her womb a sign of the truthfulness of the angel's proclamation. She too, even in her old age, being barren, will give birth to a child. And the greatness of what Mary has been told cannot possibly be overemphasized. God has looked upon her with favor and will do a miracle through her. She's told of the greatness of her child. And certainly, given the nature of the announcement, she understands something of his importance. And moreover, all of this comes with God's full seal of approval. Talk to a parent. Talk to a parent about how they feel about their kids. Every parent thinks that their kids are special, that they're above every. I remember when I tutored, there wasn't a parent who thought that their kids should be doing better than they were. And sometimes I was like, I think that he's doing pretty well for what I see out of him, right? So I didn't say that to them. I say that to my kids, but not to them. So, but you talk to parents, and every parent wants to think that their kid is a cut above, that their kid is cuter, better. But Mary literally had that child. Like, when she says, my child is better than all y'alls, she means it. Like, he's Jesus. All of this, all of this, what a promise and blessing that has come to her. And yet, what a solemn and even depressing response. Simply, I am the servant of the Lord. If this is the way it's going to be, then, then that's the way it's going to be. I mean, she couldn't even faint praise there. This is the response of a well-mannered child when they get a crummy gift from Grandpa, right? Like, thank you, Grandpa, I love this. This is wonderful, right? I doubt that Mary was just pondering what was going on. I think that Mary seems like a very smart woman, capable. Certainly, she seems like a woman who knows Scripture well. Like Joseph before her, I think she realizes what difficulties are about to come upon her. She is going to become a social pariah, be viewed as a deviant, at least as long as people remember that this child was born under these circumstances. And furthermore, while that child being great could be a true blessing, it also carries with it 
a great and grave responsibility. As parents, we are always concerned that we are messing up our perfectly average kids. Can you imagine the strain and the stress when Mary, at some point, snaps a little bit at Jesus and wonders, did I just throw the entire plan of salvation off? What if I have wrecked this kid forever, right? Like, it's, it's an incredible weight to be the parent of the king who is to save the world. We don't know how much of that was upon her mind. Certainly in the intervening months, she would have had time to think about it. Nevertheless, when she shows up at Elizabeth's doorstep, what finally elicits the joyful response from Mary is Elizabeth's own joy at what's going on. Perhaps as the angel gave her word about the sign from Elizabeth, it was, it was truly seeing her and her joy of carrying her child that finally provoked Mary. Whatever the cause is, Mary utters what we now know as the Magnificat, the great paean of praise and wonderment at the work of God. Let's not be silly. Her troubles aren't over. I very doubt that they didn't linger through her life. Joseph was going to die, apparently. She would be distanced from her son. She would watch and wonder at how normal he was. She would hear him speak of his own death. She would watch his death. She would have to know that her son died, rejected apparently both by the people that said to love him and even by God. Mary's child would give her a great deal of grief. But her joy is real. Even though all of these worries and burdens were still present, her faith in the promise, clearly highlighted by her praise, is true and evident, and it cuts right through any doubts and lights her joy. Joy is not the absence of worry, just like faith is not the absence of doubt. And the joy that we are called to is not a joy that's unaware of the difficulty of reality that surrounds us. It is a joy that is grounded in faith, and it cuts even through those worries. It's a joy that lightens the darkness and the load, that softens the harshness of the world, that changes our dirge into a dance. It's genuine joy, even if it comes amidst pain and doubt and uncertainty. But joy also is not an end in itself. It often needs an object, something to cause it. The cause of this great joy is indeed our Savior, but why? What is Jesus going to do that will cause us such joy? As Luke 2, 8 through 20 aptly says, it is the provision of peace. In the lighting of our fourth candle, even as we read this morning, we find that in Luke, there is the proclamation of peace. Ultimately, it is peace that Christ has given to us. As the angels appeared to the shepherds, note the implicit struggle that they set up right from the start. The fact that they have to announce peace is telling. Angels are not Reuben's fat little cherubs. They are magnificently frightening creatures. They are nothing less than the armies of God. They are his military. And here they are announcing that there will be peace. 
that this war, this strife is coming to an end. This, with a little bit of subtlety, speaks of the nature of the peace. It is not just going to be given, it is going to be won. Christ is going to win peace for those with whom God is pleased to give it. How does Christ give us peace? First, Christ destroys our great enemy. The promise made at the very start of the book of Genesis directly after the fall was that the seed of Eve was to crush the head of the snake. Pointed at throughout the history of Israel and men like Sisera and Abimelech and Goliath, Jesus will finally and fully crush the head of our great enemy. Satan's great power is in the law, in the conviction that the law brings upon us. He is known as the accuser of the brethren, and rightly so. But when we trust in Christ, where is the accusation? Paul says this in Romans 8. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. He says, the judge has acquitted you. The judge has said that you are not guilty. To whom then can Satan appeal? The highest court in the universe has said that it will not hold you accountable for a thing that you have done. Where is the power of Satan against that? What can he possibly do? Even if he wanted to yell and scream at the top of his lungs, who is going to condemn? Christ has been condemned for us, and he is the one who stands at the right hand of the throne. Likewise, we also have peace with ourselves. We know of our own guilt and our fallenness. We know that Satan isn't wrong when he calls us condemned. Yet even as we read just last week in Christ, we are washed, we are sanctified, and we are justified, cleared from all of our guilt. Let your guilt no longer weigh you down. You have been forgiven and your sins have been cleansed once you believe and trust in the Lord. Jesus, as we read in Hebrews, is not afraid to call you brother or sister. And by his death, he also makes peace with God for us. We read in Colossians that in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to God all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. As Paul would say in Romans 3, Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. He extinguishes and completely extinguishes the wrath of God. God has no more anger against you. He has no more wrath for you. It has been spent on the person of Jesus. We have, therefore, peace with God. And all of this means that we then have peace with one another. It is the forgiveness of Christ that gives and fuels our ability to get along with other sinful human beings. We can bear one another's burdens and forgive one another's sins, for Christ has done this for us. It's not just because it's an example but because he has given us true and lasting freedom, we are able to provide that same mercy and grace to others. No longer is the neighbor your enemy, but an object of love and compassion. Christ is indeed a bringer of peace, and thus a lamb, but he does it through war, thus a lion. He commands and leads God's angelic army and has fought and won the war. This is good news, but... 
We should always remember how Christ does this. How does he win the war? The great plan of God was not to engage his army, not to win victory with sword and shield, not with flood, not with chariot, nor with diplomacy. His great plan was a tiny child wrapped in swaddling clothes. He was God in the flesh, divinity humbled, the mightiest of warriors made weak, the most compassionate come to be hated, the provider placed in need, the creator born, the sustainer sustained, greatness rejected, holiness to be identified with sin, pure born, pure life born to die, all so that we who were dead might live again. All of this is the news of great joy that we proclaim at Christmas. It is worthy of our trust. It was prophesied long ago, and let us therefore rejoice in it. For to us, a child has been born, and to us, the son is given. Merry Christmas. Let us pray. Father, may the name of Jesus be forever praised and adored by your saints. May they place their hopes and futures in his work and rejoice that his death has brought their freedom and his grace has given them life. Be glorified today as we bow our knees in faith and acknowledge that Jesus has the name that is above all others, that he is God in the flesh, our great Savior and God. Amen.